0: Time for Legally Speaking here on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, good morning. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for
1: uh, having me. I'm uh, I'm currently up at uh, Muncho Lake, which is in northern B.C.,
0: so I'm happy we're connected okay. Excellent. Via satellite or however telephony works these days. Probably the Internet. What is on the docket today? Uh,
1: Well, the first uh, decision, I think, is a timely one out of the uh, British Columbia Court of Appeal. Um, And it is a decision which is uh, allowing a public inquiry to proceed under the Police Act. Uh, And the fact pattern of the case, I think, is a a really timely one, given all of the uh, Black Lives Matters protests that are going on in the U.S. currently. Uh, The case originally dated from 2011. Um, and it involved uh, a young man is a black man, he's 22 years of age. He was a first-year student at uh, UBC. Uh, he played football, so a good size of guy. Um, he had no previous involvement with the uh, police or justice system in any way. Um, he was going to meet a friend at a, a Skytrain station in Vancouver. Um, and he went up a uh, platform to meet his friend coming off the train. He got a call from his friend, Indicating plans had changed, so he was walking down the stairs. And two transit police uh, approached him um, and uh, asked his name. They wrongly thought he gave an incorrect name. Uh, and then, after a discussion concerning giving him a ticket for being in this fair paid zone, uh, they attempted to uh, arrest him uh, and then began to get physical with him, uh, grabbing his hands and wrists and trying to sweep his legs out from under him. And the altercation eventually uh, involved uh, one of the police officers punching the man uh, and striking him multiple times uh, in the head, neck, and back with a six-inch b- with a baton, causing serious injuries. Yes. Um, the police officers then uh, made false allegations that the man was uh, drunk um, uh, and uh, issued him uh, tried to issue tickets for that. I think to try to cover for what they had done. Ultimately, uh, the uh, charges against the uh, man who was beaten were dropped. The police officers were charged. One of them pled guilty to assault causing bodily harm. Uh, And then a whole protracted process started under the Police uh, Act dealing with police discipline. Um, And, of course, listeners are familiar with how uh, long and complex those processes can be, having witnessed what happened with the uh, investigation of the former police chief in Victoria. Yes. Um, ultimately, after uh, a number of uh, complicated steps uh, to discipline the officers, um, the, the police complaints commissioner called for a public inquiry. The police officers uh, complained about that, saying it was an abusive process, given that uh, there had been a long delay, a criminal conviction, uh, and other steps under the uh, Police Act. Uh, but the Court of Appeal, and I should say they succeeded in the D.C. Supreme Court in stopping the public inquiry. Um, However, the British Columbia Court of Appeal uh, has just decided that that decision was a mistake, uh, and that the judge failed to take into account uh, the high public interest uh, in having this uh, event carefully examined in a public way, uh, because that hasn't occurred yet. Uh, One of the police officers pled guilty to this, causing bodily harm. Uh, And the Court of Appeal concluded there is a a high public interest in having uh, this sort of public inquiry into what exactly transpired. And so the result of this decision from the Court of Appeal is that we will now have a a public uh, inquiry um, under the Police Act into the uh, conduct uh, of the uh, police officers in this case. And so we will get a more fulsome picture of this obviously very troubling Uh, event. uh, And I should say, the fact that this has taken so long uh, is itself problematic. Um, And as we talked about previously in the context of the uh, Victoria Police Chief, I think there's lots of room to improve the Police Act to try and ensure that the process is more streamlined and so that uh, decisions about these important things can happen more quickly, uh, because it's just vastly too long that we're only now going to have a public an inquiry a public one into the behavior of the police officers concerning uh, this uh, attack on the man uh, back in uh, August of 2011.
0: Indeed, the public requires a process that can, in a timely manner, adjudicate any disputes or establish or make findings of fact with regard to misconduct by police officers in order to remain confident in the use of police officers of force. So, I, of course, we need to do better. You're exactly right. I mean, there needs to be a fair process, right? It needs yes. to
1: take into account the fact that police have a very difficult job, yes. and there needs to be a fair process. But fairness doesn't require nine years, right? We should be able to create a process which meets both the requirements of uh, fairness for officers where there are allegations uh, made, but also one that allows us to come to a decision uh, and a conclusion in a public way uh, that doesn't require years, potentially, of litigation. This is just, frankly, far too long. And while well, I'm sure everyone will be keenly interested to see what exactly transpired in 2011 uh, in the context of what we've recently witnessed in the United States, um, it would be much better uh, if uh, these sort of things could uh, come to light publicly in something less than nine years.
0: The next topic that we have on the docket today I find to be an interesting one because I think you've done a really good job, Michael, helping all of us ordinary folks understand that while it's the role of legislators and politicians to craft laws and put words on those paper on paper, the individual application of those words is the responsibility of an independent judiciary and not the politicians themselves. Just one more way that we uh, take away any potential sources that may cause the public not to have confidence that laws are being applied fairly. But what happens when and the issue is what judges should be paid to do that job and it's government that might make those decisions, those sort of thorny intersections.
1: Yeah, that's a it's a serious issue and one that we really haven't uh, satisfactorily solved yet. I mean, the, the concept is that there should be independence between uh, these executive and legislative and judicial branches of government. Uh, and of course, you have judges who are making decisions often Uh, involving uh, the government. And so uh, you need to ensure that uh, they have, that is to say, the judges have adequate independence from government so that when you're showing up in court as a litigant, you're not wondering, gee, is this person making the decision somehow beholden to the person I'm having the dispute with? right? The government. And that that independence has has a number of aspects to it. One of the aspects to it, of course, is um, ensuring that there is security of tenure. We, we don't want judges being um, fired for popular decisions, and that's not some abstract uh, concern. And we've seen within the last month in Hong Kong um, the an example of the alternative, which is that security law that China brought in that applies to Hong Kong. One of the or some of the provisions of that include only judges selected by the government uh, can hear those cases. They can only hear them for one year, that uh, special appointment is renewable yearly. And if the judge does or says anything, which the government considers to be concrete to the purposes of that law, they can be dismissed. And so imagine what that's like, showing up there in court in Hong Kong, if you were alleged to have conquering their security law by, you know, carrying a sign around or something, realizing that the judge is deciding it has been hand-picked to do it, and if they get or send anything contrary to the wishes of the government, they're fired. So, happily, we, we don't have that particular problem in Canada, right? Uh, we don't have judges being fired. But one of the other areas that's important to ensure that their independence um, is how we're setting judges' pay, right? You, you, you can't have the judges sitting down at the negotiating table, negotiating with what to one of the parties they're deciding the case for, right? You yeah. can just imagine how unsatisfactory it would feel if you were showing up in court, you know, charged for some offense, for example, or suing the government, and you realize that, hey, that judge was just... <laughs> <the> <laughs>
0: money oh, money no, the this is side. the guy I refuse to give the pay raise to. I'm in trouble or something like that. Yeah, I can see that. Or the alternative,
1: right? Hey, they just got a big plush pay raise by the other side. That doesn't feel too good. And so that's supposed to be independent, right? So you don't have one of the branches of government negotiating with the other one over pay. And so in the case of um, uh, provincial court judges, uh, each province would have what is supposed to be and is an independent body who would recommend uh, pay for judges. They would review it every few years. But the way it works is that that independent body, the government appoints some people to it, the judges, law, society, others, so it's an independent group, Mm -hmm. make a recommendation. But the government has the authority to override it and say, no, we're not going to implement it. Um, That, unfortunately, has been used many times in British Columbia. It seems virtually every time the independent body comes out with a recommendation, the provincial government in British Columbia says, No, we're not going to do it. We're going to pay a lesser amount. And part of what happened um, is that um, Crown Council have negotiated an arrangement, a contract that provides that their pay is linked to the pay of the judges. So if the judges get a raise, who are relatively few in number, all the Crown and other government lawyers would get a raise. Oh, so there's so, budget implications, I see. So the, go- so the government says, well, we can't afford this, we don't want this, <laughs> even though this independent body might have made a perfectly reasonable recommendation, looking at things like, you know, what are judges in other places paid, or what would a senior lawyer make if they just continue to practice, uh, so, you know, losing money by becoming a judge? Yes. So they would look at things like that, um, and... So the government has repeatedly just said no to the recommendations, which has caused years of litigation. The litigation goes to a different group of judges that aren't affected. So people know you go to the Supreme Court, not the provincial court. So the judges deciding it don't have a stake in it. But it's produced just years of litigation. And most recently, there is a piece of litigation concerning whether the judges' association should be able to get access to the cabinet documents that cabinet relied upon in making the decision not to implement what the independent uh, salary body recommended. And the judges were successful in the B.C. Supreme Court and in the Court of Appeal, but the Supreme Court of Canada overturned that decision, at least in the British Columbia context. They found that in British Columbia, there wasn't a sufficient basis to override the high expectation of confidence and confidentiality in cabinet uh, documents, right? Ministers should be able to have a confidential yeah. discussion, and you know they have to go out and defend whatever position is agreed to. And you can imagine how that might be
0: undermined uh, if you say, hey, look, <laughs> you, you're in a completely different position. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and furthermore, as you've told us in the past, that the Shawcross doctrine after Lord Hartley Shawcross requires all members of cabinet must be willing to endorse the decisions that are reached at the cabinet table and maintain that solidarity. Otherwise, they have a responsibility to resign. Right. And you imagine how hard that would be if you're
1: faced with, uh, right, a uh, uh Journalists saying, well, look right here. you yeah. the exact opposite. <laughs> in cabinet, you're just out here, you know, sitting to assault, right? This is not what you think. Yep. Uh, and so in a BC case, they, the litigation about whether the government's decision was reasonable to refuse to do what the independent body recommended mm-hmm. would proceed, but without the benefit of the secret cabinet documents. In a parallel case dealing with almost the same issue from Nova Scotia, the Supreme Court of Canada came to a different decision, at least with respect to some of the cabinet documents, because there what happened is the government made a submission with an independent commission saying the judges should, should get zero, zero, and 1%, something like that. Yeah. The independent body came to a different decision, and then the government just implemented exactly what they said the independent panel should be doing. Right. Um, and the Supreme Court of Canada concluded that was a basis to conclude that what, has, what was done wasn't a sort of rational reason. And so, limited portions of the cabinet documents from Nova Scotia uh, will be uh, disclosed, but only a small portion of them. But the big point here is that we just really need to do better. We need to have a, the, there needs to be an independent process, and it's not really an independent process if every single time the independent body decides something, the government does something else. Um, and so um, that does really risk undermining um, sort of confidence in there being independence between the government and the uh, the judges. Now, I suppose on one level, uh, maybe the concern would be a greater one for the government if you're in there making submissions in front of people who you've routinely told no, we're not doing what was determined to be fair by an independent body. But nonetheless, these are separate branches of government. Uh, And there should be an independent process, and the independent process should be respected if it's routinely not, it undermines its entire purpose.
0: Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers helping us understand the intricacies of the intersections between government, the judiciary, the executive, and how we resolve these thorny questions and the answers often years of litigation. But hey, you have to get to an answer one way or another in order to move on and continue to develop our system of laws. Let's take our break and we'll be back in just a moment here on CFAX 1070. Back on the air here at CFAX 1070, Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers continues sharing some of his time away from Victoria with us to help us better understand the legal goings on in the news lately, Michael. We've got, uh, I think it's the UBC conviction on a Fisheries Act offense also on the list today. What's the story on that one? Well, let me tell you. The takeaway of this one is be very, very
1: careful not to leak anything bad into water because it could really cost you quite a bit of money. All, all right, I'm <laughs> so, going to note
0: that.
1: Yeah, you want to write that down. So it was uh, the University of British Columbia and a contractor that they were that they hired um, were charged under the Fisheries Act with, and this is what it amounts to. It is depositing a deleterious substance into mm-hmm. water, which is. Uh, frequented by fish. That's basically it. So, a number of interesting elements there. I guess if you're trying to prove that, you have to prove the fish are frequenting it. I was going to they say, how frequent is fat. frequenting? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Come on, the like carp is just passing through, right? Yeah, it's hardly exactly. frequenting it. And this particular fact pattern involved uh, some trouble with the chilling unit at the, I- at the UBC ice rink. Hmm. And so, UBC hired this contractor to come and fix the problem. And while the contractor was working on the ice rink cooling system, there apparently was a crack in one of the, or break in one of the pipes, and it caused some ammonia to flow into a storm sewer, which then flowed into a ditch, which then went into a creek, and that creek was frequented by fish, killing, I think, they took up seven fish. It was detected when somebody, I think, smelled the bad smell of ammonia. So, okay. you know, I guess we have a lineup to prove that they're all fish, they're dead, and the ammonia wasn't good for them. The trial nonetheless took 23 days to complete. Um, and at the end of the trial, uh, UBC was convicted uh, of doing this. There were various arguments about whether there was undue delay uh, and uh, or whether they were took reasonable steps to prevent this. But the, at the end of the day, uh, the fine levied to UBC uh, was $1.15 million. What? Uh, and the... Contractor who was responsible for actually doing the work on the ice rink was fined $800,000. Wow. Um, and so these seven fish, I think it was seven fish, um, were very, very expensive fish. Yeah. Uh, and so you need to be extremely careful when you're working on something that might be deleterious to fish. Uh, if there's some way that that stuff finds its way into a place where the fish are frequenting, you can wind up with an extremely large fine. Um, UBC appealed um, the $1.15 million fine. Uh, the contractor uh, just paid up the $800,000 that they had spent 15 days in trial. UBC spent 23 days in trial. Um, and so the Court of Appeal just got finished um, with its uh, review of this whole operation and upheld it all. They found that there, the long delay wasn't too long uh, and that the fine wasn't uh, uh, completely appropriate. Now, I should say this. Um, you do have to ask yourself uh, a question about whether it's sensible uh, to be spending 23 days in trial and eventually prosecuting and convicting a public university such that they would be required to send a $1.15 million fine to the government, who presumably would be sending that money back to UBC to continue functioning as a public university. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, so it, it does seem that we're probably productively employing uh, a number of lawyers on both sides of this thing for a very long period of time. Uh, that was the outcome. Uh, maybe that's made up for by the $800,000 that the contractor winds up having to pay. Uh, but the, the entire uh, protracted uh, operation, I think, is a cautionary tale uh, for anyone who's doing work with anything like this, lest you wind
0: up with a uh, you know, a very large uh, fine to wind up paying. That's an absolutely crushing fine—two million dollars. Well, you know, a little short of two million for seven fish. But I guess that's just the law. Don't break it if you don't want to pay the fine.
1: <laughs> Be extremely careful if you're working on that uh, cooling system with ammonia. That each one of those fish, I haven't done quite the math there, but uh, those are very, very expensive fish.
0: Indeed. Michael Mulligan from <laughs> Mulligan Defense Lawyers. I want to thank you for the benefit of your knowledge and insight, as always. We're almost out of time, and it's a short show today, so we're going to be throwing to Vancouver Canucks hockey. Any final thoughts you want to leave with us? Uh, always a pleasure, and uh, very much enjoying uh, northern BC. If
1: you're having trouble getting a campsite somewhere else, uh, everything up here is uh, uh, beautiful and uh Almost empty. It's uh, social distancing is virtually automatic. So uh, keep it in mind if you're meeting travel plans.
0: Sounds like a great idea, Michael Mulligan. Thank you as always. We'll talk again soon. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye now.